Well, good morning. Man, it's so good to see you here. I'm going to start out by using some good words here today. It's so good to have you guys here, and there are a few more this week than there were last week, which is really cool. Uh, The governor is allowing us to be able to open things up a little bit more, so it's great to see all of you here today. Also, Katie, it was so nice to have you walk in here. I know Katie is... uh, Yeah, Um, you know, Katie has been a regular part of our worship team for a while now, uh, but because of coronavirus and some health conditions, hasn't felt comfortable about uh, coming and and singing with the group and that, and so this is her first Sunday back uh, singing with us, and I am so appreciative to have you. And also, uh, you know, you just saw Carrie with the children's story, and Mark has done it, and Abby has done children's stories. During this time when we haven't been able to do children's ministry, it's been really a great thing for them to be able to do it by video or once was live um, or sometimes just remoting in and that's been really cool, just really um, uh, an amazing thing for, uh, for you guys to, to be able to, you know, have something for the, for, for us to have, have something for the kids as well. Now, you know, one of the things that we're doing is even though we can start to gather right now, we're still kind of scattered all around. And at the end of the service, you'll get to see some selfies of people who are watching from home on YouTube or on Facebook. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to give the people at home the opportunity to be able to see you and, uh, and who is here in the sanctuary today. So we're going to try something new here. And uh, let's see if we can get that up on the screen here so you guys can, can see yourselves as, we- as well. Because we want you guys to be able to say hi to the half of the church that is, uh, is still, uh, you know, either has kids or doesn't feel comfortable coming and meeting. And so what we're going to do is, on the count of three, we're going to have you say, Hi, Wait Park Church, and wave. You know, just your biggest wave, okay? Are you, you ready? Okay, one, two, three. Hi, Wait Park Church. There you go. And they can all see you. And I'm sure that, I'm sure that everyone is waving back at you as well. And... Uh, I'm not sure what's so funny, but, uh, but okay, we'll, uh, we'll end that now, and, uh, and we'll just start to, start to get into the message. Now, we are, we're starting a new series today, and obviously it's a series about the power of words. And uh, we read the, uh, the passage from, from uh, James chapter 3, and uh, you know, I don't know about you, I'm guessing... Because I know this predates me. I picked it up from somewhere. But if you remember when, uh, when you were a kid and someone on the playground would say something mean or insult you, there was always a comeback that you could use, right? Were you guys taught this growing up? And you probably know what I'm, I'm, I'm saying because this is really common, right? You would say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Yeah, you know, it was kind of like, uh, like Captain America's shield that could take any words and, and uh, deflect them off and uh, have them careening harv- harmlessly into oblivion, right? That's what, that was the purpose of this thing. And it's a good sentiment. And, and for the most part, it's, it's probably true. There are a lot of things that people say that we probably ought to uh, just, it's probably just better for us to ignore uh, because they, they don't serve any great purpose. But at the same time, there is no denying that words are powerful. So it's not entirely true that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Um, in fact, if words don't have any power, then I don't know what I'm doing up here. You know, wasting my time, right? So if you don't believe in the power of words, then I guess you can get up and leave because I don't want you to waste your time or mine for that matter. You know, but we know, we know words do have power. 
right? They have the power to inspire. I mean, how many of you have heard these, these great speeches throughout history? You know, I have a dream to, to millions of people, and, uh, and it inspires a whole generation of people. Or, or uh, we shall fight on the beaches, Winston Churchill's uh, moving speech. Or, or even just in, in movies, like, uh, like Aragorn's speech at the, gates of, uh, at the Black Gate of Mordor, right? Um, there will come a day when the hearts of men will fail, but this is not that day. You know? And it can, it can take a group of, of frightened, fearful men and inspire them to, to fight in battle. You know, that's, the, that's the power that, that words have. Uh, words can change people's perspective. It can get them to consider, to, to think about things in a way that they've never thought about them before. Or, of course, we also know like contrary to the rhyme, that they can cause harm. Even little insults can have a huge impact. I mean, think about a parent for years after years, you know, day after day tells their child, you'll never amount to anything. Words like that have a, have a deep, deep impact that carry with people for the rest of their lives. Sometimes they, they never get over it. They spend the rest of their lives trying to undo that lie. But of course, this shouldn't surprise us. The Bible has many warnings about the power of words and the words that we speak. Read through the Proverbs sometimes. It talks about words all over the place. And so today, and for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the power of words. And we're going to start by looking at probably the most complete passage uh, in the Bible on words. And that's the passage that Don read earlier, James chapter 3. So if you closed your Bible, I want you to open it up again because we're going to walk our way through the passage. Uh, if you have it, then I want you to open it. And, uh, and we will just kind of work our way through it and see what James has to say about the power of our words. Now, the book of James was written by James, the brother of Jesus. And he was leading at the time, leading the church in Jerusalem, which was primarily a group of Jewish converts. And, and so there's really a very strong Jewish flavor to, to the whole book, and, uh, and we'll see some of that as, as you read it. Um, and as we get to chapter 3, it's, he starts out with a warning to teachers in the church, and this is what he says in verse 1. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly, or, or some translations say more harshly. Okay? Now, there are some people who want to be teachers in the church or, or wherever uh, because they get to be up on the platform. They get to be recognized. You know, being, a, being a teacher is something that can bring you some honor and some prestige. Everybody says, oh, look at how, how smart they are and how great they are. It can, it can earn you a great reputation. But, but right here at the beginning, James says, if, if you want to become a teacher, you better be careful what you wish for because you have to understand that with the recognition comes harsher judgment by God, I think he's talking about. In fact, God will judge teachers more harshly than others. And I know it's really common for us to say, well, what about equality? It seems like everyone should be judged equally. Well, that's not what James says, that there are some people who are more responsible to God than others. And why is that? Well, what we'll find out during this passage is that it's because teachers use their words to guide the community. And their words can either move people toward Christ or they can move them away from Christ. They can move them toward godly character or away from godly character. The words that teachers say can change the course of people's lives. But before he gets into it, 
James starts to concede a little bit of ground here in in verse 2. This is what he writes. He says, We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Now that word word stumble might be better translated, at least in this context, as slip up. Everyone slips up from from time to time. And a slip up is not something that's intentional. It's something that just kind of slips out. It's a moment of weakness where we end up saying something that we didn't really want to say. We let our guard down and we say something even even though we know better. And and James says that very often these slip-ups happen because what's inside of us always wants to come out. It's almost like our brain is pressurized. And so as soon as we open our mouth, it wants to release a little bit, and, and we just say the first thing that comes to mind. Have you ever done that before? Anyone ever said something careless? Have you ever, is there ever, has there ever been a time when you were thinking, you're in a conversation, you were thinking something, th- something in your head, and you're kind of weighing, okay, should I say it or should I not? Should I say it or should I not? And then next thing you know, you say it, and immediately you go, oh. I guess I shouldn't have said that, right? I mean, I think we've all had, we've all had that before. This is what James calls a, a slip-up. And, and what he's saying here is, is that no one is always going to be absolutely perfect. Okay, so give yourself a little bit of grace and, and give your teachers a little bit of grace. And, and, and I would echo that. Give your teachers a, a little bit of grace because sometimes what we say is not necessarily what we mean to say. But at the same time, we have to take the words that we use very, very seriously. All right, so then he gets into, starting in verse 3, he starts to get into his teaching here, and he uses three metaphors that illustrate the power of words, and Kerry referenced one of them. And the three metaphors are this, a bit in the mouth of a horse, a rudder on a ship, and a spark in a forest. Now, as we get into these metaphors here, here's one thing that I want you to keep in mind. It's that, is that James is not just talking about the impact of our words on ourselves. He's talking about the impact of our words on our community. Okay? We oftentimes read it individualistically, okay? but we need to read it as part of a community. So he's talking about the impact of our words on the people around us. So the first metaphor that he uses here is in verse 3, and, and he writes this. He says, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Now, I know that we are, we're city slickers here, and uh, so we don't, we don't see horses very much. But maybe you know, horses are pretty big. Right? They can weigh anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 pounds, you know, they're this high, some of them. I mean, they are, they are big animals and they're powerful. In fact, when we're trying to gauge how powerful a car is, we talk about horsepower, right? And that's, that's how strong horses are. And yet, what James says is this tiny little piece of metal that we call a bit can actually cause that huge animal to turn to the left and to the right and to stop. Okay? There's a lot of power there. In fact, I, was, I asked Google... How much does a bit weigh? You know, because I wanted to compare it to the, to the weight of a horse. And, uh, and actually what I found was that the whole internet weighs two-tenths of a millionth of an ounce, or a bit, right? You get it? Um, talk about a disproportionate power, right? The, the internet, the, a bit weighs about two-tenths of a millionth of an ounce, and yet, um, and yet it can do so much. Mark, you don't get it? A bit is a computer term, right? All right, never mind. Google didn't understand what I was trying to say. I don't know how much an actual, like a metal bit weighs. I'm not sure. 
but I do know how much the internet weighs now. Um, anyway, we oftentimes minimize the power of words, um, and yet, just even a few words, just a small number of words, are incredibly powerful. Okay? And the second metaphor is very similar, and this one starts in verse 4. He says, Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Okay? Now, the, the interesting thing about this metaphor is, is that, yes, a rudder is small compared to a ship, right? But James doesn't just stop there. Okay, what's more amazing is that this rudder can work against or maybe harness the power of the wind in order to help a pilot or a captain take the boat where he wants to go. Now, you know, boats can be pretty big, but how big is the wind? I mean, maybe you've never thought about that before, but is there many things, are there many things on earth that are more powerful than the wind? And yet, in the middle of the sea, a, a rudder can harness that power, and it can steer a boat in the direction that it wants to go, okay? Now, then he, 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 he kind of, uh, in, in verse 5, James starts to jump the gun here, and he starts to make a little bit of application before he even gets to the third metaphor. I think he's got him a little out of order here, but, but who am I to say, right? But he starts to make a little application. In verse 5, he says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And again, this is where we oftentimes read this passage individualistically because that's the, that's the lens that we tend to look at life through. Uh, and so we say, well, your tongue can control your body, that your tongue can control the course of your life, and that's very true. Uh, and he actually references that too. But, but many commentators believe that, that James is not just talking about individuals here, he's talking about the body of the church. When he talks about the body, you know, we talk about a group of people as the body, like the student body or the apostle Paul talks about the church as the body of Christ. And so what he's saying is, is that the body is the church and the tongue is the teacher who uses words to guide the church. Right? But it doesn't just have to be the pastor. It doesn't have to just be a teacher in the church. It can really be anyone who has influence over a group of people. So it could be a boss could be a teacher, it could be a parent. All of them can guide an entire community. Public servants, the president, senators, community leaders. All of them are making a huge mistake if they do not consider carefully the words that they say. Because the words that they say can send their organization or the body of people that they are in charge of in the right direction or in the wrong direction. We have to carefully consider our words, or we actually have to even consider our lack of words. Okay? So take parents, for instance. Okay? Parents are teachers, and we should take this very seriously. Right? As parents, we are the teachers of our children, and I believe that we will be judged based on what we teach to our kids. Now, we have to be very serious about the words that we are using to teach our children or grandchildren or, or whatever. Um, and, and I know that there are a lot of parents who think, well, I can just do this silently. I don't really have to teach them anything. But the truth of the matter is, is that there are other people in your children's lives that are using their words to move them in one direction or another. Okay? And I'm not, I'm not cynical like that. I don't think everyone um, in the world that's in your child's life is out to set them on the wrong path. But the only way that you can ensure 
that they're getting good instruction is if you do it. Okay? You are the one who is responsible. And so make sure that you are using your words to influence them in the way that they should go. You can influence them toward Christ or you can allow someone else to lead them in whatever direction they want them to go. Okay, so you have to be very diligent about that. And it's not just when your kids are little either. Even as they get older, even if they're married and, and out of the house, your words still have a lot of influence on the lives of your kids. And so make sure that you are, are using them very carefully. Uh, take them very seriously. Okay? Now, um, also understand this, that James uses the word tongue, but your words are actually not limited to the words that come off your tongue or out of your lips or out of your mouth, right? Um, words can come in, in many different ways. The tongue is just one communication tool. But as we expand this out, and you'll see this especially as we look at this next metaphor, um, is, that, is that I think this next metaphor is something that epitomizes our day today. So as we read verse 5, I want you to think of another tool of communication, okay? The tool of social media. All right, now let's read verse 5. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Do you see it there? So, so for instance, never before has a president had the ability to start forest fires, or, or maybe dumpster fires would be a, a better word for it, than our current president, because he has this tool called Twitter, right? And so he tweets something out, and it seems like the entire country just bursts into flames. Isn't, isn't that what happens? But it's not just him. Um, in fact, you know, you hear stories like this all the time. Christmas time, 2015, a 30-year-old director of corporate communications named Justine Saka, she was traveling from her home um, in New York to South Africa, where her parents lived at the time, or where her parents lived, to, uh, to visit them for the holidays. But during her, her layover at one of the airports there, she got a bite to eat, uh, jumped on her Twitter account, and made some, just started, you know, tweeting live things that she was seeing. And, and some of them were relatively benign, kind of weird. One of them was about a German guy with body odor and, and then made some of the standard jokes about British people and all of that. But it was her third tweet that did most of the damage. And this is what, this is what she tweeted. She said, going to Africa... I hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. Now, it was flippant, it was distasteful, it was insensitive. But she never could have imagined what was going to happen next. Okay? She, hit, she hit send on it, and she walked around the airport for just another half an hour. And during that half hour, she never received a reply or anything. After all, she only had 170 followers. And so then when she got on the plane, she shut off her phone and settled in for an 11-hour flight. And by the time she landed, 11 hours later, the world was on fire. She turned on her phone, and immediately her phone started dinging with notifications. And, and the first one was from a high school friend that said, I'm so sorry to see what's happening. Another one was from her best friend that said, you need to call me immediately. And before she even had the opportunity to call her friend, her friend named Hannah called, and she said, you are the number one worldwide trend on Twitter right now. And so she quickly opened up Twitter and she checked her, and she read posts like this, in light of at Justine Saka, disgusting racist tweet, I'm donating to at care today. 
And how did Justine Saka get a PR job? Her level of racist ignorance belongs on Fox News. Hashtag AIDS can affect anyone. And the last one, I'm an IAC employee. That's the company that she worked for. I'm an IAC employee and I don't want Justine Saka doing any communications on our behalf ever again. Ever. And by the time she landed, she had been fired and virtually unemployable for the next year. All from one tweet. Just a, just a few words set the entire world on fire. Okay. Now, social media was originally created as a tool for communication. It was a tool to be able to build community with people that you weren't around. Um, but right now, today, it has primarily become a performance tool. It's the way that you can signal what team you're on, uh, and there's a place for taking a stand. But the thing that I've found, and, and studies are starting to find, is that very seldom does someone change their mind based on something that they read on Twitter or Facebook or on social media. Usually what it does is it only entrenches people in their position. And so we have to consider, when we use social media, what am I trying to accomplish here? And is this going to accomplish it, or is it just going to start a forest fire? Now, this passage in James actually um, can cause some conflicting thoughts on how we apply it. And I've pondered this for a long time. So for instance, if we look in the Proverbs, we find verses like this from Proverbs 21, 23. Whosoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Sounds like good advice. Or even earlier in James uh, 1.26, so this same book, it says this, If you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. So that, both of those seem to be pretty good advice. Tame your tongue. Take control of what you say. But now we get to verse 7 here and look at what he says. He says, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. No human being can tame the tongue. So I've, I've wrestled with this before. Like, what in the world is, is going on? James, just earlier in his book, says you need to tame your tongue, and now he says no one can do it. And so is James telling us to, to do something that's impossible? I mean, why would, he, why would he do that to us? Or maybe there's something else going on. Well, like I said, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and here's, here's what I've come to, is that I think James gives us a short-term solution and a long-term solution to the problem of the tongue, to this dilemma, right? Remember, earlier I said that, that our brains are, are pressurized, because what's inside wants to come out. In other words, you can't keep things inside forever. It, it's kind of like holding your breath, right? Uh, you guys can hold your breath, and I don't know how long you can hold your breath for, some more than others, and, and actually you can work on it, and you can get better at it. In fact, there is one guy, the, the world record for holding your breath is 24 minutes and three seconds. Think about that, 24 minutes and three seconds. That's a, that's a long time to try to hold your breath. I can do it for like, I don't know, 30 seconds maybe. Uh, it's pretty incredible, but here's the deal. Even that guy can't hold his breath forever because what's inside eventually wants to come out. And this is the way it is with what's inside of our heart. Eventually, what's inside is going to come out. Okay, so we can get better at it over time. We can get better at holding our tongue. 
Okay? Um, now, what's inside will eventually come out would be fine if all we had on the, was, on the inside was good things, right? Godliness and righteousness and all of that. Okay? But, but look at verse 9. Look at what uh, James says. He says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And so what James is saying here is, is that we have these two competing impulses inside of us. Right? There, there's a war within each one of us that he describes as fresh water and salt water. Good things and bad things. Blessing God and cursing people. Okay? And so, in the short term, what do we do with these competing impulses? Well, first of all, we need to learn the discipline of holding our tongues and uh, just kind of like holding our breath. And when we can do that, we d- minimize the damage that we can do in the short term. This is what we do. But ultimately, James says, that's not a big enough goal. It's not a big enough goal just to learn to, to hold our tongues. Because when we only hold our tongues, not only does it limit the bad things that we say, but it also will limit the good things that we ought to be saying as well. We won't say the things that are encouraging or inspiring or, or that are godly. Okay, and so while in the short term, we start by not hurting people, ultimately we have to, while we're doing that, work on the long-term goal of learning what James calls wisdom from above. So that what does come out of our mouths is actually good and encouraging and inspiring and godly. Okay? And so to that end, then, James turns his attention away from the power of our words to what's going on on the inside, and he compares fresh water to salt water, or what he calls earthly wisdom, or wisdom from above. And so today, we're going to end by comparing uh, three things about, about these, sources of, about these uh, types of wisdom, the source, the signs, and the results of, fresh, uh, of earthly wisdom and wisdom from above. Okay, so let's start by comparing the sources. So first, let's talk about earthly wisdom. What is the source of earthly wisdom? And we find it in in verse 14. And this is what he writes. He says, If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. So, so he talks about two things. First, he talks about harboring bitter envy. Now, the, the word that's used there is the word zealous. And you might, realize, you might know that, uh, or might be able to figure out that that's the root word of zealot or zeal. Uh, we use those, those words. And, um, of course, zeal can be positive. Right? We, can, we can be on, on fire for God and we can have zeal for you know, worshiping, zeal for serving, zeal for God. But if we're not careful, that zeal can very quickly become negative as well. And what was once zeal for God can easily turn into this unquenchable need to be right or this unquenchable need for other people to, to see us as righteous or more righteous than everyone else. I think you've probably met people like that before. That originally their zeal starts out as a good thing, but it turns selfish, it turns inward, it turns into a a performance. 
it turns into uh, bitter envy. And then James talks about heart, or, or it's, uh, yeah, um, he, uh, he talks about then selfish ambition, which is, which is kind of a similar term, right? Uh, and the point of this is, is that too often our desire for knowledge can be a quest just to show people how intelligent we are. And when we do that, then we become unteachable. And, and we get into this mode of thinking where our main concern becomes winning a debate rather than pursuing peace and righteousness, rather than pursuing truth rather than realizing that there is a whole lot more that we can learn. And in fact, I see this in many of the current debates in our society. Okay, there is a, a lot of self-righteousness out there, and there's a lot of a, a real lack of grace in the words that we use because we have to fight hard until the other side is defeated. And then even when we defeat them, we punish them and, and we cancel them or, or, uh, or, or we uh, impugn the character of people who disagree with us. And this is what happens when, when winning the debate is the most important thing. It's a, it's a way that we start to justify ourselves, and wisdom then just becomes a tool to bring attention to ourselves. But James says that the only way that we can access godly wisdom or wisdom from above is through humility. Look at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Now, it's pretty easy to see that, you know, the opposite of bitter envy and selfish ambition is what we call humility. And some commentators say that when James is, is talking about wisdom from above, he's actually talking about Torah. Remember, he's talking to Jewish Christians or the Bible. And, and you know, if you're a Christian, you know that the Bible leads to Jesus, and, and so what he's saying is, is that wisdom from above is not a wisdom that we make up. It's not a wisdom that we figure out on our own, but it's a wisdom that is revealed to us by God himself. It's a wisdom that's revealed to us by Jesus. And that's why we see passages like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 27 through 29. Uh, this is really interesting. He writes this. He says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, the, the truly wise person the one who has wisdom from above is one that realizes that this is not wisdom that I made up. It's not wisdom that I figured out. But it's wisdom that God revealed to me. And it doesn't allow any room for boasting. Okay? So that's the source of, of wisdom. Let's look at the signs of the two kinds of wisdom. First, verse 16. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Right? This is how you can tell a truth teacher from a false teacher. Okay? It's not just by the words that they use, although there, there's some of that. Okay? Sometimes their ideas are bad, but it's not just that their ideas are bad, but it's also that their actions are bad. Okay? And, and, and for James, and really all, for all of the Bible, you can't separate actions from ideas. You can't separate how you behave from what you believe. Okay? And, and so teachers, he says, who don't live out what they teach are not wise teachers, and you should not follow them. 
shouldn't listen to a teacher who does not live out uh, the good fruit of good teaching. This, of course, echoes what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. But look at what James says about teachers who have true wisdom. Again, back to verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Okay, now, the word for humility here is, is not the normal word for humility, but it's a different one, and it's actually one that's more often translated as meekness or gentleness. Okay? And, and what James is saying here is that the, the teachers with the true wisdom, with wisdom from a God, uh, wisdom from above, don't have to impose their wisdom on other people. They don't have to prove they're right. They don't have to shout people down. They don't have to get angry when they can't convince someone. Instead, what they do is they let their godly character do the talking. They say what they need to say, and then they live it out as the proof of what they're saying is true. To someone with only earthly wisdom, it's really frustrating when they can't convince you. They have to push more and more, and they have to be more forceful, because if they don't convince you, then they don't get the recognition that they want. But people who know that the wisdom that they speak comes from God don't need to beat you into submission with it. They can simply state it and just let their lives do the talking. And, and, And we actually see a more complete vision of what this looks like in verse 17. James describes it, what it looks like. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And I would recommend that when you go home, just read through that list and do some word studies there and, and, uh, and expand on that. We don't have the time to do it today. But uh, I would encourage you to go home and to go through those things. But basically, what he's saying is, is that the sign of, a, of true wisdom is in the posture and in the character of the teacher. And I've seen this truth played out over and over and over in my life. And and maybe you have too. The people that I've known who are full of godly wisdom have always been willing to say, you know, I might might be wrong about this, but here's what I think God is saying. But when I look at their lives, I want to agree with them. When I look at their lives, I say, you know what? Whatever it is that caused them to be like that, That's what I want. And their character was the proof of what they taught me. I want to be like them because those are people who are worth following. And finally, he talks about the result of wisdom. Okay? First, he talks about earthly wisdom. And he says that earthly wisdom divides the community. Again, to verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. In fact, this conversation continues on into, into chapter 4. Okay, so uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, this is what he writes. He continues on. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You see, earthly wisdom wants to prove that it's right and it, div- and it results in division in the community. But look at in verse 18, James describes the results of the wisdom from above. He says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. 
True wisdom brings peace to the community. Okay? And, and, and peace is not just the, the outer appearance of wisdom. Or it's not just the outer appearance of peace, but it's actual peace. It's, it's being willing to do the work inside so that, so that you're, you're, not just, you're not just sort of faking this brotherhood or whatever, but you're actually heart to heart that you love each other and you can work through things. And we've talked about before about this idea of shalom, okay, where everybody is in right relationship with themselves, with others, with God, uh, with, uh, with the world. And, and that's what peace is. And this is what godly wisdom does. And so as we bring it back around to the power of words today, we need to finish with this question. What is the result of your words? How do you handle your words? Do you understand that the words that you use have the power to impact people's lives? And what I would encourage you to do is, yes, learn to hold your tongue, especially if you're someone like me who has a history of having a sharp tongue and sarcasm and, you know, hurtful words and things like that. You have to learn to hold your tongue. But that cannot be the end goal. The end goal has to be purity of heart. So that what you'll find then over time is that you'll have to hold your tongue less and less because what will naturally flow out of your heart is good things, encouragement, inspiration, godliness, righteousness. And the result in your life, whatever body you're a part of, will not be division, but it will be peace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word today. We thank you um, that you, you challenge us in this area because it's very easy, whether it's with our mouths or with our writing, with email or text or social media. Man, it's so easy to use our words towards selfish ends. But God, I, I pray that you would be penetrating our hearts so that you're changing what's going on inside So that at some point, we don't have to be so careful about the things that we say because we know that whenever we open our mouth, only good things will come out. God, in the meantime, give us the strength to be able to hold our tongue when we are tempted to say things that we ought to not say. Help us to speak only truth and goodness and beauty and encouragement and the things that benefit the people who are listening to us. So help us as we are on this quest. Change us and teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.